0: Listener Production. <coughs> Hello Gistners, it's your second favourite, just the gist host, Jacob here. I genuinely hope you're all well. I hope none of you have been hurt in an earthquake anywhere in Australia this week or participated in a violent riot, welcome back to the show. It's going to be a little bit different for the next few weeks. As any of you who follow Rosie on the social media will already No, she's taking a few weeks off to take care of her mental health, which is so vitally important. And it's great that she's doing this. She put up a post last week that you might have seen explaining that she's reached a point at which she feels like she needs a bit of extra help to deal with how she's been feeling lately and to help get her back to a healthy headspace. So she's taken the very proactive step of booking herself in for inpatient care at a mental health facility for a few weeks. As she likes to say, she's going to the spa. And I'm sure that you'll all agree with me. It's a really positive thing that she's being so pragmatic and so wise to choose to prioritize her well-being over everything else. As she says in her post, when physical illness flares up, we treat it without question. It's important to treat our mental health the same way. And she acknowledges that she feels really lucky to be in the position that she's in where she can take this step. And she says that she's in a good place for that reason. So... We'll be missing her and we'll miss hearing new content from her on a weekly-ish basis for the next month, but we didn't want to just leave you all high and dry, especially not those of you who are in lockdown, those unending lockdowns around the country. So we've made a little plan to help keep you entertained in the coming weeks while Rosie's away. Each week, I'll be revisiting some of our older stories, each of which have some sort of historical significance that's brought them back into the headlines recently. These are all episodes from early 2020. A lot of you longtime time GISTNers will have already heard them, but I'll be providing some new context and some updates at the beginning and the end of each episode. So if you have already heard the story and maybe even discussed it over the dinner table... My goal is to get you talking about the story all over again with some new information that's emerged in the last few months. And if you haven't heard the story before, maybe because you're a Johnny-come-lately and we do know that there are thousands of new gistners who are joining the team every month who we welcome with open arms, this will hopefully encourage you to keep jumping back into our feed and devouring some of our older gems that we served up back in the good old days. To kick things off, my first suggestion for this little gists you might have missed mini series came from a member of the team here at Listener. She wanted to hear an update on the Jean Benet Ramsey murder mystery because earlier this year, a documentary was released and it presented a very different side to the story than the one we discussed in our episode about the incident, which we recorded in late March of 2020, which when I was thinking about it today, just seems like it was such a simple time. When we look back on it, the lockdowns were kind of novel. People were finding new hobbies and baking lots of stuff and making promises to themselves about how they were going to emerge from this better physically and mentally than ever before. And then they baked some more. we were all watching Tiger King around this time using the house party app to connect with each other. And I remember Caleb had just found himself stuck in Sydney and all of a sudden living with Rosie because South Australia had shut its borders. And I couldn't believe that when I was thinking about it, that I felt any level of nostalgia for 2020 and who would have guessed that 2021 was going to outshine and out crazy 2020 and make it look dull by comparison. Anyway, here's the episode about Jean Bonnet Ramsey that Rosie served up so superbly way back at the beginning of this pandemic. 2021 marks the 25th anniversary of Jean Bonnet's murder. The case still remains unsolved, and we've already seen the first of what I'm sure will be a slew of documentaries coming out to mark the anniversary. Stick around till the end because I'm going to give you the gist of the documentary Jean Bonnet Ramsey What Really Happened, which basically covers off the assertions of one of the lead investigators in the case, Lou Smith, who, right up until his dying day, was absolutely certain that the Ramses were in no way involved in Jean Bonnet's death. And he believed that they'd been really unfairly treated by the police and by the media. Just before we jump in, apologies for the quality of the sound in the original recording. I hadn't yet worked out how to use my fancy microphone or set up my space. Despite that, I trust that you'll all enjoy the ride and I'll see you on the other side.
1: Wait, Jake, I need to hold on.
0: Uh.
1: <laughs> and hit it. <sighs>
0: Hey, all you cool cats and kittens, and welcome (laughs) to another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly (laughs) itch podcast with me, Jacob Stanley, and Rosie Waterland, and we are, yes, both absolutely obsessed with Joe Exotic, Tiger King, and we are going to talk about it, but the main topic of today's podcast this week, Rosie is going to be...
1: Oh, I haven't told you yet, but this week I will be giving you just the gist of <gasps> JonBenet Ramsey.
0: Oh, is that the little pageant queen girl? Yes. Oh, excellent. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh, uh-huh. You
0: know, I know nothing about this.
1: Do you know nothing about this? Nothing
0: whatsoever. I know she was a small girl. I know that she disappeared. I know that there's some sort of conspiracy, but I have no idea who the different players are.
1: Oh. So that's why, because when I said it to you, I was expecting you to go, "Oh my god!" And you just looked kind of like, "Oh." And I was like, "F you." No, no, <laughs> no I just said like to write
0: in my brain to be like, <laughs> "I know that name." Yes, Morgan.
1: sort of, Yes, it's a little. You no, know, I love
0: a pageant story.
1: All right, well, let's get into it. Jean-Bonnet Ramsey <laughs> is, um, yes, a, a six-year-old who was very sadly uh, murdered in uh, 1996. People call her the six-year-old beauty queen, and that's because after she was murdered, the media um, found a whole lot of photos of her in pageants because her mum was one of those mums who would put her into beauty pageants and p i think the story was big because she was a a very like a very wealthy little white girl from a very like wealthy neighborhood which would make news anyway mm-hmm. but then once the media found the footage of her in pageants and the photos of her in pageants the story just became international mm-hmm. news because people were obsessed with it but we'll get to that i guess um, okay, so I'm going to just start at the start and then I'm going to tell you a couple of theories about what happened because the case is remains open. It remains open. It's never been solved. But I have my theory and um, mine is the correct one, I think. Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay, go. Okay. Okay, so Jean Benet Ramsey was born on August 6, 1990. She had an older brother, Burke, who was three years older than her, so he was born in 87. So, you know, they'd all be around our age now if she had lived. Mm. Their parents were John and Patsy Ramsey, and she was actually called Jean Benet because her dad's name was John Bennett Ramsey, and so they decided to be, like, unique. They feminised it and Frenchified it, so John Bennett became Jean Benet, (sighs) named after her dad. Her family was rich as f. Um, her dad was founder and CEO of like this computer kind of technology company that, um, in the year that she died, had turned over something like a billion dollars. So it was a, it was a lot of money. Like they lived in um, a freaking huge house in Boulder in Colorado, which is a very uh, wealthy area. They um had, you know, holiday houses all over the place. Um they also flew everywhere in their own private jet. So they had like that kind of money. They had originally lived in Atlanta, Georgia, which is like part of the deep south. Is that is that the accent? Wait. Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia. El- Georgia. Georgia. Atlanta. Georgia. Atlanta. 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 Lay it. Anyway, <laughs> we can sort that out later. Um, so, beauty pageants um, and that culture is really huge in the Deep South. Patsy had grown up there, and she'd been crowned Miss West Virginia when she was at university. When she was twenty-three years old, um, she married John about a bit about a year later. She'd basically been re- trained and raised to be a a wife, a trophy wife you know, she studied just like arts at university and was in a sorority and did pageants and then met her rich husband. They moved to Boulder in Colorado when Bonnet was still young. And that's not a state with a massive beauty pageant culture like Southern Georgia, but there is still a pageant scene and Patsy got Bonnet in it because, um, you know, they had a lot of money and it's something that to be successful at, you have to have a lot of money um, because the costumes like one outfit can cost like three or four thousand dollars and you have to change outfits in these pageants like three times. So just to enter one pageant, you're spending 10, 12, dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's not including hair, makeup. A lot of these little girls get um, what they call flippers, like yeah. false teeth made because they're losing their front teeth at this age, all that kind of stuff. Um, Jean Benet was amazing at Pageants because A, they had the money to make sure she looked better than anyone. Mm. But B, she was also a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous little kid. Like, and I think that's why the story um, was captured the attention internationally of so many people because she really is just the quintessential little American girl. She's got these huge blue eyes, mm. this adorable, angelic face, this beautiful blonde hair, which, um, a friend, um, I've read this book uh, called Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, which is uh, kind of like considered the quintessential book on the Jean-Benet Ramsey case. And there's a um, friend of Patsy Ramsey who said that um, she um, knows that Patsy used to dye her hair, like peroxide it, blonde. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she wasn't actually naturally blonde, but anyway. <laughs> she won America's Royal Miss... Little Miss Lavoy, Little Miss Colorado, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl and National Tiny Miss Beauty. Uh-huh. So those are just the ones uh-huh. she won. Um, she was very good at it. And, you know, it was competing in all these pageants, which is all those famous photos of her came from. And if you just Google Jean-Benet Ramsey beauty pageant, you'll get a 100 of these photos of her in... Full adult hair, full adult makeup, very mature adult outfits, doing very adult poses. And people have a huge problem with the fact that she was in these pageants and a lot of people kind of said, well, if she was abducted or murdered by a pedophile, then you did this to her because you exposed her to this culture. But Patsy did say later that she was really confused by the backlash against the pageant stuff. And she didn't understand why people got so caught up in it because she had been born and raised in the deep South where beauty pageant culture is just part of being a little girl. And that had been part of her life, her whole life. And it surprised people in Colorado because it's not such a huge thing there, but um, to her it was normal. And so I, I wouldn't put my kids in a pageant, but I also, for the parents who do it, I'm like, for some people it's it's what they do. It's their thing that their kids do. I don't know. Like, for
0: a moment, just acknowledge the fact that you, as a child, paid money for you yourself to be put into the <laughs> photographic equivalent <laughs> of a pageant, which then...
1: Well, no, it's different. Like, pageant, like, I I applied to do a photo shoot because if I won, I wanted to be a Hollywood star. That was just a photo shoot where I wore a tracksuit. I, like sat on top of an upside down steel bucket and held a giant sunflower because it was the 90s like and they took some photos these pageants are very specific like there's very it's like very um it's almost like uh ice skating or gymnastics the way there's very strict rules about what is judged you have to walk a certain way you have to spin a certain way you have to have a very specific kind of posture you get very specifically judged on your outfits. You have to have a talent. So you have to like sing or do something. And, and so yes, I wanted to be famous and I was a little performer whore when I was a kid, but pageants are a very specific Mm -hmm. subculture. It's hard to describe because I don't think we really have it here in Australia. So, um, I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, i I mean, I'm sure some people attempt to do it here, but it's certainly not at the level that it is over there. Um, but anyway, yeah, Patsy was surprised that people latched onto it after she died, and and also like, what's sad is that if you, you can Google Jean Benet pageant and find a gazillion photos, but you can also Google just Jean Benet, um, like I I think I googled something like Jean Benet normal photos or Jean Benet non pageant. And there's so many photos of her just dressed like a dressed and looking like mm. a normal kid, where she's not, you know, all done up to the nines for a pageant day. And but the media never wanted to use those photos, you know, because they weren't the ones that sell, I guess. Okay, so you want to get to the murder? And we know for a fact
0: it was a murder, not a disappearance.
1: Oh yeah, the yes, oh. they have a body.
0: Oh okay, <laughs> right. Okay, yep.
1: Okay. Wrong story. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, on Christmas night in 1996, Jean Bonnet was six years old. The family had gone out to a party in the neighbourhood and got home quite late and said they put the kids straight to bed. So, Burke to his bed, um, Jean Bonnet to hers. Early in the morning on Boxing Day, Patsy Ramsey was walking down the stairs uh, towards the kitchen and she noticed three pieces of paper laid out on one of the stairs. And she bends down to see what it is and realises it's a ransom note. It's bizarre. It's two and a half pages of handwritten note. Mm -hmm. It's written on a pad and a pen that came from inside the Ramsey house. And it said, um, we are part of a small foreign faction who disagree with how the US runs things. They had kidnapped JonBenet and they were demanding $118,000 for her return and it says, don't call the police, don't call anyone, just get us this money and you can have your daughter back. Patsy sees it, reads, says she reads the first couple of lines, screams out to John. John comes running down the stairs. They run to John Bonnet's room, see that she's gone and they call the police straight away. The police get there within a couple of minutes. Um, they look at the note. They determine that it's a kidnapping And here's where the police pretty much start effing this whole thing up immediately. So what they should do at this point is lock down the entire house, get everyone out of the house, search it, and, like, go from there. But instead they do a sort of search of the house. They kind of, like, look around to see if anyone's broken in. They um, cordon off uh, Jean Bonnet's room to, like, wait for the forensic team to come and look for DNA or whatever but that's it. And in the meantime, the Ramsays call a bunch of their friends. They call their minister. So all these people come to the house. Apparently, because it's Boxing Day, a lot of the police aren't like there's a skeleton crew on at the police department, and um, they send this woman over who just sort of doesn't really know what she's doing. You know, you don't have your but. You know how they say you never want to get. Uh, have to go to hospital on Christmas because that's when the worst staff are on (laughs) because like (laughs) all the good ones go home for Christmas. Mm. So I think it was kind of like that but the police department and so there's all these people just walking in and out of the house like nobody's stopping anybody from going anywhere. John is apparently trying to organize for um, this $118,000 ransom money which by the way, he points out to the police, is the exact amount he got as a Christmas bonus that year. So he kind of plants this seed like it must be someone who knows me or knows my work yeah. or knows because that is my exact Christmas bonus amount. Mm-hmm. So the police are sort of uh, looking around. They've got a forensic team in Monet's John room. John's organising the money. And then John is kind of like, oh, I think we'll take one more look around. So he takes a friend, they go down to the basement and there's a small cellar room off the basement and uh, John starts screaming and he sees Bonnet's body in this little cellar room. He picks her up, runs upstairs screaming. Um, he puts her on the carpet in the living room. Patsy runs over and starts also like touching her and screaming. Apparently she's uh, quite stiff, which means she's been dead for a while because rigor mortis has um, set in. Mm. Um, There's duct tape over her mouth. There's nylon cord around her wrists and her neck and there's a blanket, a white blanket sort of covering her body. And everyone just sort of starts running over and touching her and and, like, this one police officer there is kind of like, I'm like, hey, maybe don't – I don't think you should touch – maybe should people step – I don't – So she doesn't know what to do. So she calls the station, like, they found the body and I'm letting them touch it and evidence is destroyed. My bad. So a lot of evidence by this point has been either diluted or contaminated, both down in the basement room and on the body itself. And, like, there's so many people there that it it will be very hard now to, like – um discount certain fingerprints because there's so many different people and DNA flying around at this point. The autopsy um, a couple days later finds that the cause of death was a severe skull fracture. So some kind of thing had bashed her in the head and knocked her out and then after that she had been strangled with the cord. The story blew up internationally within days because of the photos and who she was. The Ramseys um, got a publicist and lawyers in straight away. They did a TV interview before they even did an official police interview and, in fact, um, refused to be interviewed by the police at all for a very long time, and they had very good lawyers who were able to avoid um, making that happen. The interview they did on TV is quite famous. Patsy is um, sitting next to her husband, looking quite distraught, doing that thing where... She's crying, but there's no actual tears coming out, so I think you can start to decipher what my theory is. Um, And she says, hold your babies close because someone out there is trying to take them. And so this becomes quite a famous clip. The case was never solved, so this was 1996. It's still considered an open case by the Boulder Police Department, and that's pretty much what happened. Uh Uh-huh. Now... There's two main theories about what happened. Mm -hmm. One is that someone in the family did it and they constructed the kidnapping thing to cover it up. Mm -hmm. And they think that if someone in the family did it, it was an accident. Mm -hmm. The other theory is that an intruder did come in, maybe a pedophile or someone who'd become obsessed with her because of these pageants. And as the intruder was trying to kidnap her, something went wrong. So they killed her and then um, did the ransom note to buy some time and, like, took off or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I am a big believer in the first theory (laughs) that someone in the family did this. And um, I'll explain why, Uh shall I? Yes. So first of all, they went to ground the second this happened, hired the lawyers immediately, never agreed to be formally interviewed by the police. The police should have interviewed them immediately and separately straight away because whatever they'd you know you need to get them apart from each other and getting their sides of the story to find inconsistencies in their story the police never did that um they're rich and they're influential so their lawyers are amazing they become very very close with the district attorney in boulder so you know how law and order works like the tv show the police find the people who did the wrong thing and then the lawyers prosecute them right So the district attorney is the one who will prosecute them if they get arrested, but they're, like, really good friends with the district attorney. And so um, the police believe that the Ramseys did it. The district attorney, the one who was meant to prosecute them if they get arrested, doesn't believe they did it. Mm. And a grand jury was convened. So a grand jury is when... um, They need to decide whether or not there's enough evidence against a person to even go to trial. So they'll get a jury of 12 people, they'll present the evidence and they'll say, do you think this is enough to take this to a proper trial? And the jury either says yes or no, that's a grand jury. So a grand jury, uh, the district attorney did a grand jury because she had to. The grand jury said yes, indict them, bring them to trial and the district attorney said, mm, "No, I don't think I will, because it's up to the district attorney's discretion. So the district attorney was like, "They didn't understand the evidence that jury, so I'm not going to actually do it." Mm-hmm. So helps to be rich and to have the district attorney in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Here's some other reasons I think it was them. The ransom note was totally in Patsy's handwriting. They deny it. They brought in a handwriting expert who excluded everyone from being a match except Patsy. They didn't say that that meant it was definitively her, but it meant she was the one person who the handwriting expert was like, I can't say that that's not her. Mm. There was a couple of other things. Like she always wrote her A's in, you know, that way that um, they are on a typewriter. Like she all, and so, and so when they collected handwriting evidence um, of all of her stuff that she'd written down before the murder, all her A's were like that, right? And the A's were like that in the ransom note. But then everything she started writing after the murder, she'd changed the way she wrote her A's to just regular little cursive A's. And there were even points where they um, they were looking at handwriting samples from like a couple of days after the murder and she'd written the A the original way but then gone over it in pen, oh. like to change it. Mm. There was also certain phrases that she used, like there's a phrase and hence that she used all the time in like regular correspondence with people and and hence was used in the um, (laughs) ransom note quite a few times and it's not really a common like... It's
0: not part of common parlance, no.
1: Exactly. Um, The amount of dollars, I think, to me, I think that was an attempt by them to sort of throw a red herring yeah. into the mix because John specifically brought it up with them that morning. He said, oh, that's the exact amount of my bonus. So I think he was trying to get them to start looking for people they worked with or looking for people, yeah. you know what I mean? Because otherwise, why would he have brought it up? It's
0: a curious amount. When you said $118,000, I was like, is that for inflation mm. or conversion rates? Or Exactly. No, that buy- was
1: the amount the fact that the note was long and rambling and it had also been started and redone a few times. So they found a couple um, of pages in the bin where they'd written Dear Mr. and Mrs. and then they'd ripped that page out of the notepad and then they'd said Mr. and and then they'd ripped that out and then eventually it was just Mr. Ramsey. And they were like, look, if somebody broke into this house to kidnap this girl, they wouldn't like do a few dress rehearsals (laughs) of the note in the kitchen. Like, they'd be trying to get in and out as fast as they freaking could. So, like, and also it's two and a half pages long, which is bizarre. Like, it would just say, I've got her, I want this money, I'm going to call you later today, and then you'd get the F out of the house. So, anyway, that was another thing. The 911 call. Now, this is pretty damning, I think. So... Um, The 911 operator told police this at the time, but then curiously, I guess because the district attorney was on somebody's side, she never got called to be a witness in court or anything. Um, And it was only 20 years after the murder that um, when documentaries were getting made about it on the 20-year anniversary of the um, case that the 911 operator who took the call from Patsy that morning finally told people what she knew. She's like, I haven't been hiding this. I tried to tell the police. They never seemed interested. So on the morning that Patsy called 911, she was like, somebody's got my baby, my baby, you've got to come, you've got to come. And then she thought she hung up, but she didn't hang up the receiver properly. And the 911 operator said as soon as she thought the call was done, She was immediately normal and she said, okay, we've called the police. Now what? (gasps) (sighs) Yep. And she said it sent a chill down her spine because she was like, the second she thought I wasn't listening, she goes, I knew immediately that that call was fake. yeah. Yeah. But nobody ever talked to her about it. And when the call, um, because she didn't put the receiver on properly, Uh, and 911 calls get recorded. So the call was recorded and they got some specialists, like audio specialists, to listen to the call later and they could hear talking in the background and they could hear um, Burke, the son, try to say something and Patsy snapped at him and said, we're not speaking to you right now. And then she said, oh, what did you do? And then Burke said to her, why, what did you find? So that was all recorded on the call as well. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, where John found the body. He had sent the police down to the basement earlier that day oh. and when they came up and said they didn't see anything, friends in the house said John said seemed really exasperated and a bit thrown by the fact they came up from the basement and said they hadn't found anything. And so he later went down with a friend, a friend who later... Um, it was like his best friend and later turned against him saying he thinks that they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, he John later went down to the basement, opened the side cellar door to the a little room that, unless you knew that room was there, that's why the police probably missed it because it's one of those rooms that you unless you know it's there, you're going to walk straight by it. Mm-hmm. Now, the friend said he opened the door, but it was pitch black in there and John started screaming, my baby, my baby but you couldn't see anything in there yet. And so his friend was like, what are you screaming about? I can't see anything. And then they walked in and right towards the back of the cellar room is where they found her. And so the friend was like, it seemed like he knew she was in there already. Mm -hmm. Another thing. I think Burke did it, the son. Mm -hmm. And here's why I think. Investigators found a few things. Apparently, in their interviews of people, he was very jealous of his sister and they had a very contentious relationship, which is normal. I mean, me and my older sister, Rhiannon, fought like crazy. Um, but this was a bit weird. Like, the housekeeper said a couple of times she had found that Burke had done a big shit in John Bonet's bed. <laughs> like, my sister did some weird stuff to me, but she never shit in my bed. <laughs>
0: And you should have your own bed, but never anyone else's.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I did that myself. <laughs> Apparently he could be quite violent with her, like, um, in quite nasty ways. Um, also, a police investigator, when they were going through the house, found in the office a child psychology book um, and the Page inside had been bookmarked. A page inside had been bookmarked, mm. and that page was all about um, violent sexual tendencies in children and incest. Oh, so someone in the house was reading up on something. Mm-hmm. Now, there was milk and pineapple. This is all. Can I just say all allegedly, all just Rosie's alleged theories. So just but based allegedly. On Based on what I've read and interpreted, uh-huh. this is what I think. Mm-hmm. So there was milk and pineapple in JonBenet's stomach, which um, she had to have eaten late that night because the, of where, how far along in digestion it was. She couldn't have had it at the party. She had to have had it late that night. And that morning there was a bowl on the kitchen counter with a big serving spoon in it and a little bit of leftover milk, which does remind me of something kids would do, like when you're you know, 10 or whatever or nine and you just grab a bowl and, of course, you just get a big serving spoon. Like, you don't really – anyway. Um, I think – this is a theory that a lot of um, investigators have and I think – this is what I think is probably most likely happened. I think Burke snuck down in the middle of the night to make a snack and he made pineapple and milk in a bowl – and then he's sitting there eating it with a big spoon. Mm-hmm. John Bonet came down and wanted some mm-hmm. she maybe grabbed some. I don't know. He got the shits, whacked her really hard over the head with something mm-hmm. and caused the skull fracture and then, and I don't think he meant to do it. They found a really heavy torch sitting on the bench, like one of those ones that like you know those ads where the trucks drive over them, and you know, yeah, yeah back from yeah. the nineties, yeah, 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 um. And so I think he whacked her and she, like, collapsed and he freaked out, ran up and told his parents. And the parents, who didn't want to lose both their kids to this accident, set up the rest of, like, the kidnapping gone wrong. Uh Did the strangulation, set it all up downstairs. They expected the police to find her straight away, but they didn't. So then later in the day, John eventually had to go down to the basement and find her himself. That's a pretty popular, prominent theory among world-renowned investigators. Mm. Um, The Ramseys say the police were so fixated on them that they never looked credibly at any other suspects. Mm. The police say the Ramseys surrounded themselves with lawyers immediately, got in the pocket of the district attorney, and the district attorney refused to prosecute them even when a grand jury said they should. Um, and it even got to the point where Patsy died in 2006 of ovarian cancer and after her death, the district attorney's office in Boulder um, officially exonerated the Ramses, apologising to them, saying, and I'll read this quote, the match of male DNA on two separate items of clothing worn by the victim at the time of the murder makes it clear to us that an unknown male handled these items. And the DA who um, did that exoneration was the DA that they were best friends with. Now, but the clothing they were talking about with the foreign DNA on it was John JonBenet's undies. And the foreign DNA wasn't a full DNA profile. It was just like a tiny little... Like you can either have a full DNA profile of someone, which is like a lot of DNA, like a hair or a fingernail or something. This was literally like a cell of a cell of a cell. It was the tiniest little bit of DNA. So the police bought the exact same pair of undies, fresh, Mm -hmm. opened the packet, tested it, found the same kind of DNA fragments on it. So they think it's, like, probably just someone who handled it in the factory Mm. or put it in the package or... So the DA basically exonerated the family after Patsy's death based on the fact that there was a tiny, tiny bit of foreign DNA on her clothes and in her undies that would be found on anybody's clothes and undies when you just bought it from a store. This is what money buys you. Okay, so... Allegedly. Allegedly.
0: If they're exonerated, is that a permanent state? Like you can't backtrack on that. You've been exonerated and you can never then be called in to be Um, questioned again?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. I think um, the only way double jeopardy applies, which is like where you can't be tried for the same thing twice, is if you were tried originally. And found guilty. So they have, yeah. So I don't, I think they could, if some kind of evidence just popped up out of somewhere magically, they, I think they could still get in trouble Mm -hmm. in theory. Um, John Ramsey and Burke pretty much dropped off the radar after Patsy's death. But on the 20 year anniversary of Jean Bonnet's death, so that was 2016, Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot. No, wait, was that the 30-year, 96,
0: 2006? No, she would be 30 years old now if she was born in 1990 and she, yeah, 20-year anniversary of death. 20-year well, was
1: 2016, 16. yes. Just, dub- just double-checking my maths. <laughs> so 2016 was the 20-year anniversary, so there was a lot of docos revisiting the story and a lot of interest in it, like where are they now, what's gone on. There was a documentary on CBS called The Case of John Bonet Ramsey, which got some of the best FBI forensic just investigator, like, you know, handwriting experts, blood spatter experts, like all the best people in the world, they got them together and they got them to go completely over the case to see what they think happened. They came to the conclusion that Burke did it, that he just got angry with her and hit her with something and... um the parents covered it up to protect their son. Um, Burke um, did a interview with Dr. Phil, which did not go well because he's an odd man. He um, was very awkward on camera. He uh, kept smiling at weird times. He didn't seem very convincing. And after the interview, everyone was saying, well, he did it. It's obvious that he did it. Um And people asked Dr. Phil, like, after you interviewed him, do you think he did it? And Dr. Phil said, look, I don't, he didn't say whether or not he thought Burke did it, but he did say it's unfair to judge whether or not he did it based on that interview, because some people are just socially awkward. Some people are very shy. They get nervous in front of the camera. He clearly was. Like, you can't. Mm. say whether or not someone is a murderer based on them being awkward on camera but he was very awkward on camera you can watch the interview Mm. Um, Burke sued CBS over the documentary that said he did it for like he sued CBS he sued the cleaners at CBS. He sued the cousins of the cleaners at CBS. He sued people who have once walked past the building. Like, <laughs> Burke yeah. sued everyone. Basically, all the suing was for, like, almost a billion dollars, yeah. which is why I keep saying allegedly, 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 allegedly. Smart. Um, It never really went anywhere, though, and they apparently settled out of court for a sum that was n- nowhere even close to that, but... I mean, they didn't settle it in a way that got rid of the documentary because you can still watch it. Mm. Um, And so, I mean, that's sort of where Burke ended up. Um, He said in his interview with Dr. Phil that he thinks it was a pedophile that got obsessed with her from the pageants Mm. and then broke into the house. There has been famously in the news a couple of pedophiles have falsely confessed, have said, I'm the one who killed John JonBenet Ramsey. So they've brought them in, they've interviewed them, they've asked them for certain details, and there are things that, like, if they did it, they would know and they didn't know, and so it's been proven that they just wanted to get their names attached mm-hmm. to the case. There are some people who do truly believe that it was an intruder and that the Ramses have been unfairly maligned for this for years. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's that likely, and because this is just the gist, I can't be bothered going into all the reasons behind that theory because... <laughs> that would go forever, mm. but I will say that that is a theory. And there is just as many reasons as I gave you as to why I think the family was involved. There are just as many reasons to explain why it was an intruder. Mm. So people say that this case is like, um, what's that ink blot test? Rorsch, Rorschach. Rorschach test. People yeah. say this is like the Rorschach test of true crime. Mm. The way you look at the clues and interpret them and decide what you think it is is, you know, everybody's different. Uh-huh. So that's the case of jean JonBenet Ramsey. Very yeah. sad. I mean, because I think it's so sensationalised and so nuts and even the way we're talking about it now, what people forget at the end of the day is that it was a little, it was a six-year-old little girl who yeah. died. Yeah. And it almost became like she was never a real person because it was just this story and these photos of her and, and yeah, it was she was just a sweet little girl. She
0: became a doll.
1: Yeah, she became a doll forever. Yeah.
0: Um, That is really, really sad. I mean, I didn't even know that she was no longer alive. she has been Mm. murdered in a really horrific way. Um, Yeah. I'm still hung up on who the hell eats milk and pineapple?
1: I know, that is a weird eater. Maybe they wanted, this is their kids. I mean, maybe they wanted cream and they couldn't find any or I don't know. It's very weird, but mm. milk and pineapple, cream
0: and pineapple—that's bizarre. Uh, I mean, they
1: found remnants of it in the bowl, so mm. yeah.
0: So Burke's still living in Colorado.
1: Uh, I'm not sure where they're living. Um, not long after uh, Jean Bonnet died, they moved uh, back to Georgia. I think mm-hmm. Jean Benet's buried in Georgia, and her mum is buried next to her. Um, I sort of tried looking into where Burke and John are and the latest I can find on anything is the interviews they did back in 2016. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know anything more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other, what are your thoughts, thoughts, questions, comments?
0: Um, How much older was he than she
1: was? Three years.
0: Three years older.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I will say that in the documentary, (laughs) you can see why he sued them. They um, hired a nine year old. No, wait. How old was she? Six. So he would have been nine. They hired a nine year old kid and they got the big heavy torch and they got an animal skull. No. And they got the kid to bash the skull a bunch of times to see if it was plausible that a nine year old kid could hit a skull with enough force to give it a fracture. <laughs> and they determined that it was, and, that's, and, and so you get to watch five disturbing minutes of a kid smashing skulls with a torch. Um, but they do determine that it's very possible with that heavy torch to have caused a significant skull fracture.
0: Okay, that's, you know, an experiment that could have been done behind the scenes. Yes, right. <laughs> putting people
1: through <laughs> so, that. Hey, I didn't say it was. I didn't say it was a tasteful documentary. Oh. Uh, uh,
0: and where do we find this documentary?
1: Um, well, it's called "The Case of jean Bonnet Ramsey," and it's a CBS documentary. CBS is part of uh, bought-out Channel Ten, so it probably is on Ten Play. I guess. Okay. I'm sure you could just find it on YouTube somewhere, but um, hmm. yeah very interesting to watch.
0: And we've all got time on our hands to watch it this week.
1: Mm. And I also looked uh, there's a book, a uh, very famous book about the case is Perfect Murder, Perfect Town by a guy called Lawrence Schiller. Um, also, I just went into the search bar and podcast and typed in JonBenet Ramsey and listened to a bunch of different episodes. That's a good idea. It's actually a really good way of like, Researching things because uh, you know, there's a podcast on everything. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the best one I listened to was one. Um, there's a podcast called Generation Y. Have you ever listened to that? No. It's like a true crime podcast. So, these two guys just go through all the evidence. It's um, really interesting. It's like super long, it's definitely not just the gist, yeah. it's definitely <laughs> very detailed. Um, yeah, so those are the main things I looked at. But there's honestly so much. This is the kind of thing where you google it and there's 10 billion trillion pages of stuff mm. but um I've been fascinated with it forever. It's one of those weird if you're a true crime person, I think you're you've read something about the Jean Bonet Ramsey K yeah
0: and is yeah. your theory one of the most popular ones
1: yeah mm-hmm. I would say it's the most popular one. another one is that um she uh, that Patsy did it that um jean JonBenet, like, wet the bed or something and Patsy got angry and maybe hit her a bit too hard or... But, I mean, I think the most credible one is that it was Burke mm-hmm. by accident. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> I'm just reiterating what other people have said. From everything I've read, that's what I think is the most likely thing. Everyone has a theory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who knows? Cool. But... What do you reckon just from that little JTG?
0: It definitely sounds like an inside job. Mm. And everything that you say seems to stack up as a very possible narrative for how things went, allegedly. Yep. Allegedly.
1: Allegedly. Allegedly.
0: (laughs) But it's really
1: sad. I know. It's really sad. Yeah. It's really sad. Mm. It's like a real lit, tiny little human life, you know, and it's like people just she gets forgotten. Like the name Jean Benet Ramsey just makes people go, "Oh, that weird little beauty queen." Uh-huh. Like nobody actually thinks of it any in any more sort of depth than that, and I think that's really sad. It's a real little girl
0: okay so here we are almost exactly 25 years on from the tragic brutal murder of this little girl with no conclusive answer as to who did it ...but still with lots of speculation swirling in the form of documentaries and articles and podcasts. And I can't say there have been any major breakthroughs in the last 18 months since we released our episode... ...but we have started to see the anniversary documentaries come out... ...starting with the one that I already mentioned came out at the beginning of this year... ...called JonBenet Ramsey, What Really Happened... This was made by the Discovery Channel, and I'll tell you straight up, it could very easily be interpreted as John Ramsey's attempt to sway public opinion in his favour before more documentaries come along later in the year, which no doubt they will. As Rosie said in our episode, there's a pile of evidence that points to the killer being an external intruder, and this documentary presents that evidence exclusively as proof that they're putting forward that the Ramseys were totally innocent. And if you were to watch it without a lot of background information, you'd more than likely be convinced that the killer must have been an intruder. I'd recommend watching it if you're even the slightest bit curious, but if you don't have the time or the inclination or the Foxtel subscription in Australia, but pro tip, you can just get yourself a 10 day free trial like I did. I will go ahead and give you the gist of what's contained in the documentary. Basically, it focuses on the work of Lou Smith, who was one of the main investigators working for the district attorney's office looking into Jean Benet's murder. And Lou had been asked to come out of retirement to work on the case because back in the day, he had been the best of the best all throughout his career. He'd been a homicide detective for decades. Then he'd worked for the coroner's office and then for the district attorney. And he'd successfully put more than 200 murderers in jail. The documentary charts the experience that Lou had while he was investigating Jean Benet's murder and really focuses on the difficulties that he experienced working with the police department because they, the cops, had always been so certain that the Ramseys were guilty and Lou believed that they were only looking at evidence that proved their theory that the Ramses were responsible. Lou, however, straight up from the get-go had been convinced that the evidence showed there must have been an intruder in the house. So that's the lens that this documentary views the case through, why Lou was the only objective, unbiased investigator of the case. And it uses his personal voice recordings, his audio diary, to help tell the story in a fairly compelling way. Basically, it explains that when Lou came on board, he reviewed all the evidence and quickly formed a theory that supported his gut instinct that the Ramseys had to be innocent. He just didn't believe that people like them could be capable of a crime like this. And yet they present him as being completely unbiased. He believed that the killer was someone who knew the family and was familiar with the house, and that this killer had initially intended to kidnap Jean Benet for a ransom. And he'd waited until the family left the house on Christmas night to go out for dinner. He broke in through the basement window, leaving a footprint skid mark on the wall as he climbed down. Then he went upstairs, took his time, writing out draft after draft of the ransom note on Patsy's notepad using Patsy's pen, but of course wearing gloves so he didn't leave any fingerprints behind. And in the note, he'd asked for the very specific amount of $118,000 as a little wink to show that he knew about about John's bonus and about the family's financial situation. Then when the family got home, the killer hid somewhere, waited for them all to go to bed, snuck into Jean Benet's room, used a stun gun on her back and her face to knock her out. Lou was able to find a model of stun gun with the exact width of prongs that matched the marks on Jean Benet's body, despite the fact that the police said no such taser existed. He then took Jean Benet down to the basement where he tortured and assaulted her. She was fighting back at some point and scratching him, which explained how mysterious male DNA ended up underneath her fingernails, which, by the way, the cops tried to hide from the district attorney and the public for some time. Then the killer had hit her on the head, crushed her little skull, knocked her out, but didn't yet kill her tried to shove her in a suitcase. They did find fibers from the lining of the suitcase on her clothes, but then he couldn't get the suitcase out the window. So he decided to just abandon the kidnapping and leave her corpse in the basement after he had finished strangling her to death. He then used the suitcase as a step to climb back out the window and scarp it off and to help support this narrative Lou pointed to the testimony of the neighbor across the street who said that they'd heard a child screaming in the night which all of the Ramses said they had not heard. Lou was able to prove that this was actually a possibility. A scream could happen in the basement that wouldn't be heard upstairs in the house, but would be heard across the street because there was an open furnace pipe in the basement, which basically blasted any loud enough noise up through the pipe and out to the outside world. And whenever Lou would assert his theories, he'd be shot down, partly because the cops had already made up their mind that it was an inside job, and because Lou had formed a close relationship with the Ramseys, which clouded his judgment. So it became the battle that Rosie described between the cops and Lou, representing the district attorney, and they each tried to discredit the other publicly. Lou accused the cops of trying to save face and repair their reputation after they'd botched the crime scene management so badly, which does kind of add up. The cops declined the offer of help from the FBI because their egos were so bruised and they wanted to show that they could do their jobs without any outside help. And Lou also accused them of leaking information about the Ramses to the media to make them look bad. Some of that information was true, like that they were investigated to see if they had any child pornography in the house. And some of it was untrue, like that they weren't cooperating with requests for interviews or for giving DNA and handwriting samples, that sort of stuff. And the cops were furious at Lou for pulling stunts with the media, like reenacting on camera, how the killer could have gone in and out of the house via the basement window. And this battle kept going on for two years along the way, people on both sides resigned in disgust over the way that the case was being mishandled. And Lou then ended up not only being pushed out of the DA's office, but he had an injunction filed against him to try to silence him and stop him sharing any information or evidence about the case with anyone. Despite that, he was given the chance to testify for the grand jury when that was formed. But He didn't really think there was any chance he was going to achieve anything doing that because it seemed he was the only one who thought that the Ramseys were innocent. So he was pretty devastated because he was certain the Ramseys were going to be tried and convicted despite his best efforts and that the real killer would still be out there somewhere. And then he was as shocked as anyone that no charges were made against Patsy and John And John and Patsy gave Lou full credit for that. They thanked Lou for saving their lives and he promised them he'd keep working independently as an unpaid private investigator. He wouldn't even accept gifts from them at any point. He spent years working methodically through this huge spreadsheet he'd kept of all the tips and potential leads that the police hadn't investigated thoroughly enough in Lou's opinion went through them all systematically, never found anything that led to anything meaningful, but because he'd been so focused on the case, he was invited to come back in an official capacity in the 2000s. And when he did that, he played a major role in getting the Ramseys exonerated because he was able to request in that role that new DNA testing be done. And that testing showed that jean JonBenet's underwear and her pajama bottoms had the same mystery male DNA on them, which suggested that they had been touched by the same man who potentially could have been this intruder. Lou kept searching for the killer. He genuinely believed that he was out there somewhere and he was still investigating right up until he died fairly suddenly of cancer in 2010. So this documentary is just as much a tribute to Lou as it is a strategic counterbalance to all of the other documentaries that point the finger at the Ramseys. It tries to leave you with a kind of weird sense of optimism that even though the killer is still out there, he will be caught eventually if the Boulder Police Department start using more advanced technology to find him and they drop their fixation on the Ramsey family. Watching the documentary, it's pretty convincing at times, and it definitely made me pause and think, well, what if Lou was right? What if the Ramseys had been treated the way the Chamberlains were treated? We know how the police manipulated the evidence and used the media to convict Lindy Chamberlain for a crime she didn't commit. What if that's what happened to John and Patsy? Which is obviously what they want you to think watching this documentary, but then when you step back, And you consider that the only people who were interviewed in the documentary are Lou's son and Lou's daughter, who talk about him like he's a hero and a saint. And John Ramsey himself, who delivered the eulogy at Lou's funeral. That's how close they'd become. And then one reporter who's always believed that the Ramseys were innocent. And then you layer on top of that, the fact that they don't reference at any point in the documentary, the 911 call, or the undigested pineapple in JonBenet's stomach. And there's no discussion whatsoever about Burke's behavior when he was a child or when he was an adult. They've just been very selective in the facts that they choose to present, which really ends up undermining their whole strategy. But look... As I've said, I'd encourage you to watch it. And if you do, please let us know what you think. You can send us an email, justthegispodcast at gmail.com or of course you can contact us on Instagram at justthegispodcast.com at Jacob William Stanley or at Rosie Waterland. And maybe this weekend you'll decide that you want to get a full 360 degree view of the case. So I'll go ahead and put links in the show notes. Back when we originally released this episode, we weren't even doing show notes at that point. But um, I'll go ahead and put a link to the documentary that Rosie recommended, The Case of Jean Benet Ramsey, which is available on YouTube in two parts. You could watch that. In in partnership with jean JonBenet Ramsey, What Really Happened, and then make up your own mind. I'll be back next week to revisit another of our older stories. In the meantime, stay safe. We love you. Have a fab weekend.
1: Listener.